Bruce Boudreaux speaks, plus the much-hyped Battle of Alberta starts tonight. It is Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. Dot .ca. Uh, lots to get into today, Drance. A really interesting night in the NHL playoffs last night. Uh, I think uh, the Avalanche are, are still getting shots at uh, Jordan Bennington and the St. Louis Blues as we speak. What a <laughs> display of power. Oh, oh my goodness. I, I think they're still clanging them off posts uh, Yeah, as we begin the How show many, here. Did they hit seven? It, it, I lost count after like, a while. The Cogliano one, I think, was seven. Uh, the third period post that they hit. Unbelievable. Yeah. An unbelievable flex by the Colorado Avalanche, particularly against a team in St. Louis that team that, you know, people like hockey viewers, people who don't sort of pay attention to the underlying numbers, uh, you know, Boudreaux, we'll call them. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, the, you know, people like people who are just watching the Blues play have one opinion of them, but they don't have a high end five on five gear, right? They really don't. They do not have that elite gear. It's why I didn't think they could beat the wild, even though they did. Um, now, it's easier for the Avs to turn up against a team like that. Like, I don't see the Blues as having a huge... I don't see a huge gap, to be totally honest, in terms of the gear that the Blues can hit at at evens and what the Nashville Predators can do. But nonetheless, when the Avs become that force of nature buzzsaw that they can be, it just looks like they're a team that's about to put it together. And yet, we've seen these types of performances from them in the playoffs in the past, including against the Vegas Golden Knights last year, only for it to fall short. I, I, I seriously think, though, if Calgary does not get by Edmonton, I think you're going to see this type of form from the Avs right through the cup final. Calgary, however, I legitimately think can skate with them. The Look, it, it's far. Yeah, they've won their first five playoff games. As you said, they've been in this position before, and it hasn't gone as they wanted to after that. When they hit that gear that they hit last night, especially in overtime, especially, you know, as the game progressed, it looks like they're playing down a league, right? (laughs) It's like a good NHL team has been, for some reason, scheduled to play an AHL team. And it's like, wow, this looks like a completely different sport that they're playing. And I think they they might be the only team in the league that has that gear, that, that, or at least can consistently reach that gear and look as overwhelming and as dominant as that. It doesn't mean they're going to win. Doesn't mean they're you know a lock to even go to the Cup Finals, but their highs might be higher than anybody else's left the, right the, now. There's other teams that can throw flames. Like there's other teams that can shoot flames, can can throw Hadoukens in the NHL. Like there's some great teams in the NHL, but they're the only team that throws napalm. Right? It's just <laughs> it keeps burning, and and it's it's all about the speed. Now I want to talk about the Avs before we get into sure the Boudreaux talk. For this reason, I haven't tended to. The, the Avs have not been my hobby horse team, in part because I think it's really hard to replicate the process that they went through to, to build this team, and it involved multiple years at the very bottom of the league. So I, I haven't thought of it as being super relevant for Vancouver at this point. You don't want to take the Avs template from 2017 to 2018, uh, you know, those two years where they were terrible and traded O'Reilly and traded... Duchesne and traded, um, you know, 
a, a ton of good players bottomed out. We're, we're like a team that had like 50. Didn't they have a 50? For a 48-point season. 48-point yeah, season. They had a sub-50-point season in 2017, right? Yeah, I don't which, think, by the way, would be in Nathan McKinnon's fourth year in the league. Right. I don't think right? that's instructive for us. No. no. Right? Like, I, I don't think this Canucks team can afford to take that sort of time. So that's been the reason why I haven't tended to bring them up. But you watch them play last night, and... I don't know how you can watch them play and not be filled with envy. I mean, that's the type of team that would be so cool to cover and talk about in this marketplace. It would be so cool. You know, for all, for all the commentary that I occasionally get, you know, you'd criticize a cup win. The Avs haven't even won, won a cup, and I can promise you I wouldn't have much critical to say about that team. Haven't been out of the second round yet. Right. Because it's so hard. It's so hard to win in the playoffs, even with a team like that. And yet... I think the Avs have one super instructive inflection point in their team-building story that, that is instructive. And it's that they made the playoffs, and I, I assume you've got their season history in front of them since you were able to yep. pull up. So what's the year that they made the playoffs and lost in the first round? So that would be the next year. So they went from 48 points. No, 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 no. Oh, 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 okay. So going back to Patrick Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be 2013 14 in Nathan McKinnon's rookie year. Okay. So Nathan McKinnon's rookie year, they have Stasny, yeah, they have it, Duchesne, they have they, Ryan. They didn't just make the playoffs. They had 112 points. 112 points. They yeah. were they were electric. Now, they were the first team to use the early goalie pulls. They were pulling goalies with 10 minutes to go, and they had a ton of shooters. So they were able to outperform their shooting percentage, and their goaltender that year, I believe it was Varlamov, was just electric. It was his best season. And between those items, they were able to punch well above their weight. And they believed their own bull bleep, right? Like, they believed that they'd found a way to sustainably outperform a complete inability to control play five on five. I have never picked, with perhaps the exception of the New York Rangers in this series against the Carolina Hurricanes, a 110 point uh, against a 110-point team with as much confidence and swagger as I picked against that avalanche team like that avalanche team was the definition of smoke and mirrors but they believed it they believed that Wa had cracked the code was a genius coach just like how he'd saved the franchise when he arrived in 1996 he'd done it again and they doubled down on a team that had Andre Benoit Tyson Berry in their top four and couldn't again couldn't had zero fastball at five on five was all changeups and off speed stuff. And they came back the next year and for a year and a half thereafter, they struggled mightily and then they bottomed out massively. And all of a sudden president of hockey operations, no less a hockey lifer than Burnaby Joe Sackick realized, Oh boy, I've got it all wrong. I need a mobile defense. I need reams reams of young affordable depth i need to promote different types of people i need different types of viewpoints it's not just my hall of fame teammate who i need to listen to i need to and he went out and he promoted chris mcfarland to assistant general manager and he uh you know brought in eric parnas who who was a, a guy who modeled out tactics using analytics combining analytics and video but he was a coast guard employee when when he joined the avalanche organization and they began to approach the problem differently. Now, there was some good old-fashioned hockey executiving, <laughs> executiving, uh, executive work along the, along the way. Most notably, the way that they held firm on Duchesne and just waited 
until they got their ridiculous price, mm-hmm. uh, a price which effectively built their defense core. Sam Gerrard came in that deal, as did ultimately Bowen, Bowen Byron. Byron. Yeah. But, but it was the ability to have that eureka moment. It was the one of the oldest hockey guys being like, okay, we have been doing it all wrong, and we need to dramatically alter and modernize our approach to winning in this league. And that's what the Avs have built. And this Avs team's not small. You know, it, it, it's a relatively small defense core. They're certainly not the Tampa Bay Lightning or, or St. Louis Blues behemoths on the back end. Uh, they kind of break the mold in terms of what an NHL or a championship defense core might look like. If they can get it done this year, I think you might see a shift. But there's, certain, there's certainly some new age elements to how the Avs are built, but there's also, you know, big power forwards and and players like Landeskog and Rantanen and Nichushkin, Nichushkin who, who play heavy and play hard. Uh, they've got elite competitive players too, guys like Lekkinen, right, who who sort of fits that yeah. classic Blake Coleman mold. N- so Nazem Kadri certainly no, uh, no, no <laughs> shrinking violet, as we all no know. No shrinking violet. His, he has to restrain himself. Yeah. So, you know, th- they've got that too. They're not a one-dimensional offensive team. They can gut out uh, uh, close playoff wins. The point being, though, that they had that moment where they fundamentally altered how they viewed winning. And, you know, the Canucks, I think, have for a long time been trying to win games with playoff-built lineups, right? Like the the, the heaviness, the foundational pieces, uh, that two-way intelligence, a ton of checkers, a bottom six that tends to be pretty old school as opposed to being a little bit more offensive, uh, overvaluing size on the blue line, typically speaking, in, in some of the trades they made and the, and the signings they made. So, you know, they've, for at least eight years, have sort of had this viewpoint of, of how to win now. We've got a new Canucks management team in. And while some of what you'll hear from them in terms of sandpaper, right, speed, um, seems a little more prescriptive, seems old school almost. And, and Rutherford is an old school hockey guy, no question. But there seems to be at least an understanding that you need to control play. You need to have that five-on-five gear, a high enough end five-on-five gear that you're not just relying on the goaltender, that you're not just relying on um, you know, your in-zone defense, that you're not just relying on the fact that you have shooters that can convert at a high rate. The fact that new Canucks management looked at this team and the way that they performed over the latter 60 games of the season and said that's not how we're going to win in a durable way, I think is a really good sign that, yes, it's not Joe Sackick having a eureka moment and re-altering his priorities of how to build a team, but it's Jim Rutherford having this approach to winning, which involves you know, doing some of the things that certainly the New Age viewpoint would highly recommend in terms of you know, build a fast team with a ton of depth, where you can outshoot and control games against your opponents, right? I, I, there, there is sort of a change in approach here with new management that seems to trend in a similar direction, and I'm curious to see how far that goes. All of which brings us back to Bruce Boudreaux's well, commentary. I, I want to talk a little bit yesterday. more about Colorado before we get to okay. uh, Boudreaux, but you're right, it does. And, and some good texts coming in, some good thoughts about Colorado. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Jazzy texts in, uh, if there's any hockey people that don't believe in analytics, just use the eye test then. The Canucks are no Colorado Avalanche or Tampa Bay Lightning, which should 
be the goal. And this one on sign says the Avs are stupid fast. I've never seen one Canuck skater uh, skate like half of their team. Darren Helm is on the fourth line and he's still fast. And, and Cogliano. And, and Andrew and, Cogliano. And, and, uh, Obey Kubel. Yeah. That guy can fly, man. And the thing with Colorado, and the, obviously everyone's going to focus on the speed. And yeah, it is up and down the lineup. It's up forward. It's on the blue line. The big guys can skate. The little guys can skate. Everyone can skate. I love watching Eric Johnson play because there's no way a six foot five <laughs> gentleman should be yeah. able to move like that. Yeah, he's look, Eric Johnson's only like a second pair guy for me, but I've he's always been one of my favorite players to watch play just because he's got to be the best skater inch for inch. In the NHL, I think. Like, there's no other big man who, At moves, his size? who moves yeah, like that. That's it's, interesting. It's honestly wild. And the thing is, you know, you often hear from teams that don't have that kind of natural speed in their lineup, right? That there's a difference between being able to skate fast and being able to play fast. And I think there's some truth to that. You know, you think of the the little quick uh, in-the-zone passes to generate speed and get out to the neutral zone, those sorts of things. Yeah, there are ways you can compensate for not having the fastest lineup. The thing is, Colorado does both. Like, they're incredibly good skaters, and they play in a way that is maximally designed to use that speed. They Like, they also play fast. So even if you have an incredible structure that allows, you know, you're not quite as fast skaters uh, to play with a lot of speed, you're still going to be at a disadvantage because Colorado does both. They do both potentially better than anybody in the league. Just the way they are so relentless, pushing the puck up the ice, using their speed, using their passing to try to get it into the dangerous areas of the ice— when you have it rolling line after line after line like that, it's just overwhelming, even for a very, you know, professional, disciplined, veteran team like St. Louis, all of those adjectives you want to throw at them. And the other thing about Colorado that's really interesting, as you said, the actual trajectory of the franchise is really hard to follow. Like, you just think about Nathan McKinnon having such an impressive rookie season, then taking steps back, as a result, signing one of the most friendly second contracts, turned into one of the most team-friendly second contracts in NHL history, still only making 6.3 through next year, which is just an incredible number when you think about what you're getting him at. Uh, bottoming, him out, all, bottoming out all the way to 48 points, that allowed them to draft Kale McCarr in the top four uh, in that year's draft. All of those sorts of things, I, I'm not saying it's they're only good because they're lucky or anything like that, I'm just saying those are really difficult steps to replicate. You can't just look at it and say, oh, yeah, we'll just follow that blueprint, right? Well, you know, one team, though, that I think has a chance at replicating that blueprint is the New Jersey Devils, right? They had Jack Hughes have a slow start to his career. They locked him up. Jack Hughes' AAV is going to be $8 million, $8 million for the next eight years. What a haircut. Like, if you saw him throw fireballs in the latter half of the season, I mean, there's a real chance as of next year, $8 million looks ridiculous. Have, and that's the first year of an eight-year deal. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a team that has a chance to do it. And they jump up to the number two pick this year as well. So another ch- so they're going to get can to add Slavovsky a high-end or yeah. right in. I mean, could you imagine if they're going Hughes, um, Hisher. Hisher, right yeah. down the middle? Uh, ridiculous. I mean, that team's that team's on very good footing for a very long time here. But I'm really curious to they see. They need a goalie, though. You know, yes, they do. Oh boy. If if Colorado wins, wins the Stanley Cup this year. And there's a long, long way to go. They still have to do uh, 11 more wins to get there. But we always think of the NHL as a copycat league, right? But I'm very curious. And obviously it's just, okay, we'll try to get more fast players. But it's not as if you can just go out in the short term and replicate what Colorado has, right? Like, oh, they won the Stanley Cup. We'll just we'll just go become as fast as Colorado up and down our lineup. Like, you can't do that. You can't do that even in probably over two or three years. It would be extraordinarily difficult years of to discipline. replicate that. Yeah, so I'm really, really curious to see 
what the reaction is going to be. Because there's a big difference between, you know, signing a fast player for your bottom six, right, over the, you know, the more stereotypical grinder, you know, 220-pound checker. But it's the defense. That's where where the Avs are materially different. And I know, you know, we just talked about Eric Johnson being a big guy. They just acquired... Josh Manson, right? They signed Jack Johnson in free agency. So it's not like they're wilting violets by any means. But Gerard is kind of their shutdown guy. He's like 5'9". He's literally Quinn Hughes' size. And they've got, you know, and he's their shut. He's He plays their tough minutes. Yeah. Uh, Kale McCarr is not a huge guy, although he can play. He's got some edge to his game. Um, you know, they've, they've, it's the defense that's a little bit less beefy. Certainly in comparison with recent cup winners like Washington, St. Louis, and Tampa Bay. And I think that's where you will see, potentially, if Colorado is to win, that's where I think you'll see uh, the, the copycat element sort of come in. But, of course, on the flip side of that, if Tampa wins again, or if Tampa beats Florida, a team that profiles pretty similarly to Colorado, if Calgary wins, right... Um, if if Carolina wins, teams with you know more hulking defense co- groups, uh, I don't think you're going to see that change. You're going to see continued skepticism about mm-hmm. whether or not an undersized defense core can hold up at this time of year. The Gerard one is really the key one because, as you said, Makar, he's just kind of a supernatural talent, so he's almost yeah. exempt from the rules of like copycat roster building because you're not going to find another Kale Makar. Then you mentioned you know Eric Johnson, Manson, those guys who have those traditional elements of size. Gerard at at his size playing the type of minutes he does that's the kind of thing that if that team has success has a real chance to impact how teams think about building their roster right and, and I think more than anything else that could be the impact where I forgot Taves but he also profiles as an undersized guy yeah. playing huge minutes and and I mean he he might be he might be like the best holding mid in the NHL <laughs> right now in terms of in terms of just being a signal caller he he seemed the impact that he has on the direction of play is just through the roof, through the roof. Yeah, and even Taves is Give, giving him up and winning two GM of the year awards consecutively is <laughs> is really something. And then firing Barry Trotz because the message is stale and hiring his assistant to replace oh him. Oh boy, <laughs> that's certainly an interesting course of action. Signing there. your fourth line center through twenty twenty seven. Yeah, good, you good, always good call. You always have to do that when you have yeah. the opportunity to do it. Unreal. Um, 650-650, again, is the Dunbar Lover text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. We'll continue to look at the playoffs throughout the course of the show, but I do want to get, uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of it here, and then we'll uh, do more of it after the break as well. But I do want to talk about the Bruce Boudreaux exclusive interview that was uh, on Canuck Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah here on Sportsnet 650 yesterday afternoon. And we had heard Bruce Boudreaux, you know, on Friday afternoon speak to the media from the golf course after he officially decided to return and pick up his option. And, and nice jo- flex, yes, nice flex, by the way. Absolutely, he's Love enjoying that. his off season, and 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 more As power to him for doing it. Yeah, uh, this was really the first kind of in depth sit down interview that we heard from Boudreaux, and. There's a lot to get into. We'll play some clips throughout the course of the show, but uh, just kind of off the top, the thing that really stood out to me was Boudreaux is sticking to his guns on his evaluation of the team, right? And it was very striking to hear when they did their year-end media availabilities and Boudreaux spoke on one day and said, you know, this team's a couple of tweaks from from taking some big step forwards. And then the next day with Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine, we heard them take a very kind of different stance on where the team stands 
And that was the thing that really jumped out to me yesterday is, you know, Boudreaux was not making any sort of, well, uh, actually, we're farther away than I thought or anything like that. He was very much of the mind that, you know, this is a good team. We won, we won a lot once I took over behind the bench, and I think we can do even more winning next year. And here's just a little taste of uh, Bruce Boudreaux specifically talking about whether the team has enough talent to take a big step forward next year. Well, I think we have uh, a pretty good roster if everybody's healthy um, and everybody has this, the same attitude that we had uh, last year. Like, I mean, uh, when we were healthy, we were very competitive with, you know, um, with with any team we played, whether it was the, the first three games we played, uh, two of them were against Boston and Carolina, and we beat them both. I mean, and we did it with, you know, good goaltending, but good defense and, and timely goals. I mean, or when we'd play, we went on that gauntlet road trip in the last two, you know, I mean, we, we won in Washington and won in Nashville. I mean, we played good teams and we won. And so that gives me the, the thought process that we can do it again. And uh, um, I'm sure that every team in every league makes a few um, tweaks every now and again, and I'm sure we're going to do it. But, I mean, if, you know, another year of uh, uh, other guys getting older, more experienced, uh, playing with their partners, um, uh, healthy, uh, I think will make us a, a much better team. And, and uh, you know, and I can't wait to get started and can't uh, wait to see, you know, if what I'm thinking is going to come true. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux yesterday on Canucks Central with Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah. You can hear the full uh, interview on the Hour One Canucks Central podcast available right now wherever you get your podcasts. And there it is. I mean, Boudreaux just basically saying, yeah, we can play with anyone when we're healthy. That That's his belief. And I don't think you have to really read between the lines too <laughs> if much. If only Alex Edler were healthy, they would be playing meaningful games in March. I don't think you have to read between <laughs> the lines too much, Drancher, to, to uh. see how different that is than what Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin have said about the team, but I also don't think it should come as a big surprise that that's Boudreaux's, at the very least, that that's Boudreaux's public-facing point of view about the team and his record. Steam would be coming out of my ears if Boudreaux was the general manager, but he's not. He's the head coach, and I have no problem hearing that from the head coach because, especially Boudreaux, Boudreaux's such a positive... Like, I, I bet you anything that he believes in the positive of... Uh, or the power of positive thought, where, like... He has to banish the idea of negative commentary from his mind because even thinking it makes it more likely to occur, right? Like, I bet you he's one of those people. And within that sort of realm, like, the idea that he wouldn't 100% back the team, 100% have a positive outlook about what the team can accomplish, um, you know, the idea that he would be so disciplined within that structure, to me is just his approach to maximizing what the team can accomplish with him sort of manning the dials behind the bench. And I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. I think that's, you know, first of all, I don't think that probably matches how he privately thinks about the hockey issues that he has to solve. And B, um, you know, that's his job. Maximize what this team can accomplish on a game-to-game basis. Get as many points as you can. I do think, however, that if this team was to build off of that take that it would be a disaster. And and so, you know, I think you can hold both countervailing views. Like, I can disagree with him wholeheartedly. The idea that if only they were healthy, 
you know, oh, if we're healthy. No, you have to win even when you're not healthy. You have to assume that you won't be healthy and still win. You have to find a way to force a game seven with Louis Domingue in the net. You know, you have to you have to find ways to win injured. You have to control play in game seven with Chris Tanev out of the lineup. Like that's we're seeing it play out. The great teams can overcome injuries a hundred percent of the time. Injuries are an excuse, period. They, and not and not an excuse for the players day to day, but an excuse for leaders to sort of point to and and obscure various flaws in my in my view. You have to be prepared and structured enough to win despite them. But again, I have no problem with the coach having that take. The fact that management's singing from a totally different hymn book, I mean, that to me is a major reason for positivity. And the fact that Bruce Boudreaux views it the way he does, I don't I don't have a problem with that at all. I, I think, you know, I'm not gonna bet against that guy managing to do better with this roster than whatever they look like they're capable of doing on paper. And and you can't you can't question his methods considering he overachieves consistently everywhere he goes. Yeah, it's not a surprise that Bruce Boudreaux is going to have extreme confidence in his ability to get teams to the playoffs, right? Everything in his resume suggests that he should have that confidence. The evidence demonstrates that my teams make the playoffs. And Torji texts in, of course Bruce is going to stick up for his team. Uh, I think we all take the comments, especially from Rutherford, a little too literal, but the coach knows we need some changes. And I think the other thing is, you can if you're Bruce Boudreaux, if you're the head coach, you can recognize... That, oh, okay, we need to change some of the things about the way we play. We need to get better performance from our our blue line. We need to be uh, smoother breaking the puck out. You can recognize that all that's true, but also have the utmost confidence that you're going to figure out a way to fix it, right? Yeah. Th- th- I think that's part of what's going on here is, as you said, I'm sure that he's aware of things he would like to change about how the team plays, but he also probably has the confidence that he can fix it. And again, when you look at his resume... Uh, that's no surprise there. This one unsigned says Bruce is thinking about making the playoffs. Management is planning for a Stanley Cup. Again, I have no problem with that. I have absolutely no problem with that. You wouldn't expect it to be any other way. And uh, last, last thing on last thing on this. One advantage that Boudreaux can take advantage of from from a motivational standpoint, right, is if you think about the experience that a player on this roster will have had over the last few years. There's been a lot of us-against-the-world mentality from within the room itself, right? Um, You know, you go to the bubble, no one believes in you, you have that success. The next year, you know, management sort of pulls the rug out from under your team, all your teammates leave, Um, you know, you're a bottom 10 spending team. Players recognize that sort of thing 100% of the time. Um, You know, the coaches are kind of left out to dry, um, players like Demko and Hughes and a variety of other Canucks players go to bat for those coaches. They get extensions. You come in this season, everything goes haywire for 25 games. Then the team does really well under Boudreaux and responds really well to Boudreaux. And, you know, while I think players are aware too of what it takes to win, right? What it takes to play with structure. They're also, Boudreaux's really well liked among almost every player he's ever coached, but certainly by this group. And so if you come into the season and you've got uh, an executive team that doesn't quite seem to believe in the team as much as Boudreaux does, right? And moreover, is known for having an itchy trigger finger when it comes to trading players and sending them on their way. There's an opportunity there for Boudreaux to build an us-against-the-world mentality that perhaps helps you overachieve, right? There, there's a real opportunity there where 
you know, in some ways, you can even cast yourself as like, well, we'll all stay together if we win. You know, like you want to stay here. You got we got to prove it every day. Like we're going to have each other's backs. We're not going to worry about the outside noise. We're not going to worry about the shot clock. We're not going to worry about the analytics. Let's just go win. That's all that matters to our group in here. I mean, it does feel like that sort of scenario is parting like the Red Sea for him to sort of tell his players and, hey, that's a good story to tell. It's a very good story to tell. And, and Marty the Red Texan, uh, I wouldn't read too much into what Bruce said as it relates to him versus management. In my opinion, he's still motivating his team for next season. That was a message sent That's directly right. to his players and the fans. And I think that is bang on. Marty the Red, Bruce is a very, very smart, very, very experienced coach. And he knows that, especially now in Vancouver, when he says things, it's going to get back to the players. And keeping that positive tone, positive thinking going, it makes total, total sense for Boudreaux and the team. Yeah, it does. I just, I just, I don't want to hear any more injury stuff. <laughs> I don't have, I can't, I can't, I can't listen. Like that's, that's the mediocre talk that we have to banish. We have to root that type of chatter out, um, um, you know, root from stem in this marketplace. It's seeped into the way we view and talk and, and about hockey. It's why when I, my simple take that you have to be really, really good to win the Stanley cup gets people in this market mad people get furious about the idea that you have to be a great team to win the cup now like we've got to banish loser talk around this sport in our market and that's loser talk i'm sorry it is all right we're gonna we're gonna take a break for drance to cool down uh subscribe to the canucks hour podcast on apple spotify google wherever you get your podcast leave us a five-star rating and review as well we'll play some more back from bruce boudreau look ahead to the playoffs tonight as well it's the canucks hour sports at 650 Welcome back to the show. Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, Drancer, we've got to, before we get back into the Canucks and hockey talk, we've got to do the... Um, the exotic cat report, and I, I'm not talking about uh, the Florida Panthers and their loss to the Tampa Bay Lightning last night, but uh, earlier in the show, Ian and Dunbar texted in, police just stopped me and said a large exotic cat has escaped its owner's compound and is on the loose in Pacific Spirit Park. And uh, sure enough, I, I went over and checked out the Twitter feed uh, of our pal Martin McMahon, reporter for City News Vancouver, and... He said, you know, he was reporting on it as well. Heads up for parents and pet owners. We just got a tip from a listener and Vancouver police confirm a cougar has been sighted in the area of Granville and 25th. So that was the original report from Martin McMahon. Then following up on that, he says a relieving update. It appears this isn't a cougar, but rather an escaped domesticated Savannah cat, which was initially misidentified. Uh, police advise students at nearby schools to shelter in place. That has been lifted, and now the most recent update is that uh, they have captured <laughs> they have captured the Savannah cat and returned it to its owner. Now, I did not know what a Savannah cat was. Savannah cats are terrifying. Okay, so when I initially saw that, I was like, wait a second. Did somebody mistake just a house cat on the loose for a cougar? But no, so apparently Savannah cats are, are serious business. Savannah cats are terrifying. My, my, <laughs> cousins, my cousins had a Savannah cat and when I was growing up. They might still. Its name was Tundu. And I was terrified of that beast. Terrified. 
I remember one Christmas Eve, I slept over at their house and they drove me to the airport to fly to Palm Springs in um, on Christmas Day the next day. And I was sleeping in the guest room, which was just like a pull-out couch downstairs, right? And I remember waking up and the cat was licking my feet. Oh, wow. And like, maybe that's affectionate behavior. Like if I woke up and my dog was licking my feet, I'd be like, oh, you rascal. Who's the biggest <laughs> rascal? You're just a little rascal, aren't you? But- that cat licking my feet. I just remember my cousin's name, Sarah. I'm like, Sarah, Sarah, <laughs> like, Tundu wants to eat me. <laughs> I was like 30. <laughs> this is like two years ago. <laughs> um, so anyway, there you go. There's your exotic cat report and update that uh, everything is all safe and taken care of. This text comes in. I got an email from my kid's school saying they were stuck inside for recess because of this cat. Uh, but the Savannah cat is accounted for. Uh, thank you to everyone who texted in. And if you want to read more about that, as I said, check out our friend Martin McMahon over at City News. Vancouver. All right. En- enough frivolity like that. Uh, we're back to the hockey talk. Uh, and I wanted to play this back from Bruce Boudreaux because one of the things that was mentioned by Jim Rutherford when he spoke to the media about the Boudreaux situation, about the year end, uh, you know, the year end availability in general from Rutherford was there were certain things that the front office wanted to work with Bruce Boudreaux on. And obviously, structure was one of those, but incorporating more data, more analytics, to use that kind of nebulous buzzword, uh, into the conversation was another one of those potential areas to uh, to work on between Rutherford and Bruce Boudreaux. And of course, uh, Dan Riccio and Satya Shah asked Bruce about that, and here's what he had to say about the use of analytics in coaching. Well, I mean, uh, I think he's on the same page. I just, uh, uh, I just think that um, uh, sometimes that... Uh, in my case, that I would uh, look at look at the game and be able to think I can read the game uh, just as good. And when you go and you do the analytics with it, um, the eye uh, visuals usually are exactly the same as the uh, the analytics. I can say, well, Jesus, we were hemmed in all night long. We didn't get the puck out. Then you look at the analytics and you go, yeah, that's true too. But I mean, um, what I have noticed. Uh, uh, more since the playoffs began, the teams that do some of the things better than what we did, I've really focused on um, watching what they're doing. And uh, so, I mean, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's an argument that you can get into one way or the other. Um, sometimes it's personnel are better. Sometimes they have just a different style. I mean, uh, we may not have had the best entries or uh, exits uh, whatever, but we were a top five defensive team in the league. So we, we must have done something else right that, uh, uh, that, helped us, that helped us do what we were doing. And when I say top five, I'm, saying, I'm talking when I got there. Uh, not that I was the difference, but the team was in the top five defensively in the league. So, I mean, um, uh, we, we do, did things not maybe as well as some other teams, but other, other things that – other teams didn't do as well. We did better, and it usually equals out in the end. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux yesterday on Canucks Central, speaking with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw, and talking about you know his approach to looking at analytics, saying they often match up with what he sees going on on the ice. Anyways, you know, defending again the the record of the team and the performance defensively as the team. You know, Jim Rutherford had specifically mentioned zone exits, and you know, Boudreaux didn't push back on that, but said, "Well, we we were doing some other things right. If you look at our goals." 
uh, goals against record once he took over. And <laughs> okay, look, I'm not willing to live in a world where we cast Bruce Boudreaux as the anti-analytics coach. No. Here's the thing to remember about Bruce Boudreaux. Bruce Boudreaux is like the patron saint of controlling play from the perspective of analytics guys, right? The, the analytics movement has long held Bruce Boudreaux to be the standard for head coaches. And partly that's because the analytics movement sees the playoffs as so random that they don't ding Boudreaux for the playoff record. They just see the way that when he takes over teams, their control of play seems to materially improve consistently. And as a result, he must be doing something right. So while Boudreaux's view of the club's defensive numbers, I mean, that's Thatcher Demko. That's Spencer Martin. I'm sorry. Like, the club's defensive numbers actually got worse by the underlying numbers, just in terms of the raw number of chances that the Canucks permitted after the coaching change. It's that their overall ability to control play got a little bit better because they were generating so much more with the way that Boudreaux played, right? Boudreaux's impact was actually far greater offensively than it was defensively. That's just fact. At five on five, at right? Five because five. we can look at the penalty kill, dramatic the penalty kill, there. dramatic yeah. improvement. No question. So, but, but that doesn't change the fact that, that doesn't change the fact that what Boudreaux does well is control games. What Boudreaux does well is actually very much aligned with sort of some of the concepts that are, that are at the, at the root of what, analytics which suggests you need to do to build a winning team and so we can't cast this guy whom analytics have always loved as this anti-analytics guy uh, no more than we should sort of crown Jim Rutherford as the patron saint of progressive hockey thought you know 40 years into his professional hockey career like we're not going to set up this false dichotomy and bang that drum all year as good as it might be for business Right, like as as good as good a talking point, as fun a sense of black and white drama as that might offer us, and we could and we could bang that drum probably all for twelve months from now. Like for the next twelve months, we could probably have arguments within that vein. It's way more complicated than that, and I'm not going to play that lowest common denominator hit. But but there's definitely some things in there that you know um, made me sort of. Certainly, certainly made me a little bit nervous in that in that I don't think the factual record matches the take. Um, but honestly, what's most interesting to me was him saying, now that I'm watching the playoffs, I see some of the areas that we weren't so good at. I'm paying close attention to them because I don't think you can watch these playoffs and the amount of short passes that teams make in exiting their zone. It's like the signature thing going on in these playoffs. On, honestly, yeah. it's it's wild how differently this Canucks team played versus the way that the rest of the league plays, particularly in that area, right? The winning teams make four or five quick passes, and then they're able to attack as a group. Um, the Canucks never even try to do that. And when they do, it's dicey as anything because I, I just don't think they have enough. You know, I, I described Devon Taves as a, as a holding mid, right? They don't have enough of those guys with the two-way IQ to sort of connect play from the back end. I don't know how you address that tactically without also changing your personnel, but for sure, for sure, uh, that I mean, you have to, you, you can't be that far behind the league in terms of how you approach the game. And if you are, you're never going to get it done. 
And the the point about not trying to build up this idea that Bruce Boudreau is against analytics or anything is really, really important. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, in his post-game media availabilities would often reference things like shot attempts, right? Uh, things like high-danger scoring chances, which are kind of, you know, certainly not the most complex numbers or concepts or anything like that. I mean, we're seeing, you know, the Sportsnet broadcast in these playoffs is giving us consistent updates on shot attempts between the two teams, right? Like, that's something that's very much entering the mainstream, but those are also concepts that are kind of uh, foundational to the whole analytics movement in hockey. So obviously Bruce Boudreau has some uh, familiarity and some degree of acceptance of numbers like that. The thing I find most interesting is beyond just, you know, what does Bruce Boudreau think about certain certain concepts in analytics? What does Jim Rutherford think about them? Is what does the kind of ideal or high level integration of analytics from the top to bottom in an organization look like, right? Because I think we often get into these dichotomies where, uh, you know, that team is smart. They hire, they have three analytics people. That team is dumb. They only have one and they don't listen to them. Right. And then we see everything through that lens. Like every decision, the smart team makes, even if it doesn't seem to make sense, you're like, well, there must be something uh, behind in the analytics. that's leading them to make that decision. And every uh, decision, the dumb team makes, it's like, well, yeah, they're just doing that because they're not listening to the analytics. But I think it tends to be so much more complex than that. And it's really interesting, especially when you get down to the coaching level, right? Like how does it's great for an NHL head coach to come out and say, hey, I want to be more analytically driven. I want to look at the data. I want to listen to the numbers. But what does that actually look like in practice? And what would that mean, you know, for any NHL team, for, for the Canucks to actually kind of have that level of cooperation and integration of, of something like analytics up and down the organization? So I want to talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning here really quickly because there is a gentleman who works for the Tampa Bay Lightning and his name is Brian Garlick. Uh, and Brian Garlick is John Cooper's guy. Like they were together in Missouri doing, you know, basically prep hockey, Green Bay gamblers of the USHL, you know, on through the Norfolk teams that won the Calder Cup and, and won an AHL record consecutive games through to Tampa Bay. They've been together for like 25 years. And, you know, this is an oversimplification, but the way to think about it for anyone listening is the relationship between Ted Lasso and Nate. <laughs> yeah. very, very seriously. Yeah. Cooper's the motivation guy, the, the people manager, and he's got a guy who is his tactics guy, like his designated tactics guy. They've been together forever. And, you know, that's an example of how it can work. It does. It, that's a very rare setup. Most NHL coaching staffs, you rotate pro, pro, pre-scouts. You don't have like a tactical assignments coach who's the head coach's right-hand man and has worked with him for two decades. That's like an extremely rare setup. But, it, but it's an example of one way that technical know-how and, and information and analytics concepts can filter down to a head coach. It doesn't always work like that. Sometimes you have the general manager present it. Sometimes you have direct relationships between analytics staff and the coaching staff. Now, in Vancouver anyway, uh, over the last few years, over the last few coaches, uh, dating back to Tortorella, like Tortorella was pretty open-minded, despite mm -hmm. what you'd think, uh, in working with the analytics staff. Willie Desjardins was extremely close-minded. Um, Aline Vigneault was deeply integrated. Um, Travis Green was deeply integrated. And I don't really have a sense for Boudreaux's relationship there yet. But I suspect that, you know, 
I suspect that it's certainly not the same as it was where there was an awful lot of systems work done with advisement from the analytics team, um, you know, personnel decisions, reports, that was all heavily weighted under green. I, I suspect we, I suspect the organization is not functioning at quite that level in terms of integrating data into coaching decisions. But there's areas of the team that I think they were certainly um, more integrated. And and you know, one example is Bradshaw is known, for example, uh, the assistant coach Bradshaw is being extremely progressive in terms of his use of data. Um, likely got that from Ken Hitchcock, right? And then was part of John Tortorella's staff. So we know that he's worked with a couple of guys who are very data-driven in terms of their decision-making. Even though, again, Hitchcock and Tortorella seem like old-school types, very, very data-driven in terms of um, their approach to tactical and lineup decisions. And, you know, I, I do think that when Shaw has had a portfolio, as he did with the PK late in the year, that's been deeply integrated, and and you saw the results, right? I mean, the results speak for themselves. Uh, but you know, again, it it comes down to personal preference, it comes down to process, it comes down to organizational integration. One thing I do think you're coming into in the league is that the demand for autonomy in terms of coaching decisions, the idea that you wouldn't work as an organization or, or look at the data or make collective decisions with management and hockey operations staff or incorporate, you know, some basic R&D concepts, that's, that's kind of over. Like teams have accepted that they need to mine every possible edge to win in a league where winning is this difficult, where the margins between success and failure are this slim, that you need, every, you need to load the dice as much as you possibly can. And if that involves... Um, you know, coaches being open-minded about data, then so be it. it. It's a necessity. And, you know, I think you're coming in, like you're, you're reaching a point where those coaches that struggle in that area, um, it's not just that they fall behind results wise. It's also that organizations don't want it. Organizations yeah. legitimately care about how a coach works with their nerds. Uh, that, that's how organizations function. That's a contemporary NHL team. The game has changed to the point where the idea of like throwing a report into the bin is, you know, something that everyone would see as a lack of professionalism and quite rightly, right? If you get data on how to do your job from a consultant and you completely disregard it because you're going off gut feel in any other business, people would say, that's lazy. You're a joke, not a team player, right? I mean, people would criticize performance over that. Yep. And increasingly in, in this contemporary world where the real world is seeping slowly into standards, even within, you know, the, the traditional confines of, of, of a hockey locker room, uh, those standards apply too to head coachings, head coaches. And I think the key is just at least at the first kind of the starting point is that open-mindedness. At least be willing to listen and genuinely give a fair hearing to these ideas that are being presented to you. you know, it doesn't have to be your kind of natural language or the first prism that you view the game for, but you have to be open to those ideas. You have to be open to having those conversations. And I think for most coaches, if they can be convinced that something is going to help them win, they're going to embrace it, right? Whether it's branded as analytics or not, right? If they can see the logic behind something and they believe that it's going to help them get two points night in, night out, uh, they're going to be eager to use it. It's going to be something to watch uh, how that develops for the Canucks behind the scenes going into uh, Bruce Boudreaux's first full year behind the bench when they kick off training camp and the season next year. That does it for us today. Uh, the People shows up next. I do want to highlight this. Former Canuck, uh, Tim Hunter, who also, of course, 
a veteran of many, many battles of Alberta back in the day in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, he's going to be on the show And a heck of a o'clock. WHL coach. Heck of a WHL coach as well. Another hockey lifer, one of the toughest guys in the NHL in his day. So really looking forward to Tim Hunter uh, talking memories from battles of Alberta past. Uh, again, that's on the People Show at 2 today with Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. You're listening to the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.